Welcome to The Self-Made Theory. The podcast that's all about innovating, overcoming and prospering. We interview founders, entrepreneurs, innovators, CEOs and other exciting people about their amazing business journey. Over to your host, Ben Campbell, for this week's episode. I have some pretty astonishing numbers for you for this week. 30 million customers, a combined wealth of $486 million built in just over four years. Pretty phenomenal results. My guest Toby, with his fiancée Kayla, has built a global powerhouse business called Sweat in what you may consider the fitness industry. But really, it's a story not dissimilar to Netflix. It's about innovation, technology, business models and discipline. Toby shares with us what to do when you receive 25,000 email complaints within 24 hours of your app release and how to end up as number one in the app store only two weeks later. He talks about how money is a motivator of diminishing returns. He says that you can't reinvest time and how important it is to invest in yourself and how being a founder is all about discipline, not sacrifice. My name is Ben Campbell and this is The Self-Made Theory. Toby, welcome to The Self-Made Theory. Thanks so much for having me, mate. It's a pleasure to be here uh, with you today in your corporate head office in Parkside yep, that's in right. Adelaide. Yep. So let's start with your elevator pitch. Who is Sweat and who is Toby Pierce? Sure. Um, so Sweat is a technology and app subscription business uh, and we operate in the health and fitness space. Um, so we provide... Um, yeah, health and wellbeing content to women all over the world. Now um, we've got more than 30 million consumers now in literally pretty much every country in the world. Um, we're translated into seven different languages. We do it all out of our head office here in South Australia and yeah, very, very proud to be doing what we're doing. So most people would say 30 million consumers. Yeah. That just seems phenomenal. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot of people, that's for sure. <laughs> so when you hear 30 million consumers, do you take a double take sometimes and think, look yeah. at all the people that we're reaching and lives that we're changing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, there's a lot to be said about obviously sometimes taking a step back from what you're doing in the day-to-day life to make sure that you know, you're, I think, taking appreciation and you know, showing gratitude for all that's been had. But because um, a lot of the time, obviously, you get caught up, you know, in the day-to-day, looking at the the metric dashboards and um, you know all of that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, look, I got to be honest, like that's uh, definitely not a number that I ever thought will come up on my screen. Um, and uh, it's pretty amazing that it's there today. So yeah. So where did it all start? Where did uh, where did Sweat start? Uh, so it, it all started quite a few years ago now. So I guess to go back in time a little bit, I was a personal trainer back in 2011, um, and a year and a half or two years after that, I met my now fiance and business partner Kayla we were both personal trainers you know at some point in time and um, I was working in a gym and she was working in a studio and uh, I started running an outdoor women's fitness boot camp um, which was uh, pretty good at the time I thought it was pretty fun and um, it definitely worked well as a business but the reason I pivoted you know from one-on-one training to the group training was because it allowed me to provide you know training to more women at a lower price point and it also meant obviously you know, we could train outside and it would be fun and you know, we'd develop some good friendships and such but you know, after a while, you know, uh, Kayla and I sort of partnered up with that and we had a couple of different locations and, you know, it was running really well and we started to sort of use social media um, to, you know, generate some buzz and, and I guess, you know, basically as a marketing channel to drive leads to our business. But um, what happened, which was a good thing but also a problem, was, you know, a lot of people really liked what we were doing um, and I think mostly, you know, they, they really loved the, the results and, you know, the community feel that we'd kind of 
you know, we were able to manifest like with among, among our members. Um, you know, so we got to this point in time, maybe you know, around the middle of 2013, where we were sort of like, well, you know, a lot of people want this stuff and they're asking for it, but literally not just in South Australia, you know, or Adelaide, you know, not even just in Australia, but literally in countries all over the world. Um, and that was a pretty surreal moment as well, because you know, social media was kind of, I wouldn't say new, but Instagram was definitely new, and that was kind of where we started. And um, yeah, we, we sort of thought like, oh, isn't it weird that, you know, we're just doing our personal training here in Adelaide and, you know, now someone in America, you know, wants to do the same thing. Um, so we, we kind of had a conversation and we thought that, you know, that maybe we do an ebook. Yeah, so maybe we release an ebook, um, which would effectively kind of, you know, be a documented format of the, the workouts and such that we would do, um, you know, with our clients. And, you know, so we did that. We, we partnered it with, um, you know, a couple of hundred pages of, um, you know, I guess educational content that we thought was very important. Because um, I, I guess you know we're big believers in the fact that fitness isn't just sweating. Obviously, you've got you've got to really know what you want to do and how to achieve it safely and such. But so anyway, we packaged that up, and you know, early 2014, we kind of go to market, and it goes bang, and literally we've got like tens of thousands of women all over the world, you know, emailing in telling us how much they love the product, you know, that, that they're using it literally in countries that we've never even heard of before, you know, um, you know, uh, they, they've somehow got motivated to buy our product, and they like it was just yeah, it was, it was a really really tremendous time for us. And um, so, why did that resonate? I mean, we're really only talking four years ago. Yeah, which, literally. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. isn't a long period of time. Mm. So what was happening in the market and how come these, you know, these women were so underserved in the market? I think the, you know, the health and fitness industry as a whole and effectively maybe more specifically like the exercise portion of the market, so gyms and personal trainers and such, I think is, um, you know, it's a really interesting space in many ways um, because although, although on the outside a lot of people kind of assume that that industry is all to do with looking good, and that's the way that it's marketed to and that it's sold to, um, that the most important thing for the consumers is actually about how they feel. And so I guess we kind of came in with this approach that was not necessarily dictated by, you know, aesthetic performance. It was more dictated by emotive performance. Um, but as it turned out, obviously, if you were emotionally happier and more engaged with what you were doing from a fitness perspective, you actually got better results physically. You know, and so we kind of, you know, took this approach, which was, you know, th- th- I very often say, I'm like, we didn't invent a burpee. You know, we didn't invent the burpee, right? You know, um, and if you did, it you're would, in trouble. Yeah, yeah. People don't like that. <laughs> they really don't like that one. But um, but no, I think you know we, we took this approach where you know we really put the customer first. Um, you know, we put the customer and their you know their best intentions first. We genuinely tried to create a really high quality product as well. I think that our, our industry is a little bit strained sometimes by people who are kind of. Well, I'll, I'll, you know, I really like working out. It's fun. I'll get qualified, and then they they think that it, that's just the way to get into the market. So there's a lot of different products out there, um, you know. And so I think you know, we definitely spent the time and energy to try and make it work. And you know, I think our customers just appreciated that. And you know, that's kind of what's flowed on over the last years to help us get to where we are now. So wow, that's pretty amazing mm. in four years. Yeah. How important is having a you know, fear head like? Kayla as part of that mm-hmm. brand versus having a brand that doesn't have something yeah. like that. Yeah. Look, I think it's, uh, to be honest, I think that's actually a really hot topic right now, like in, in general. Um, and you know, the, the reason I say that is because if you look at a company like Netflix, for example, like literally only two or three days ago, they announced their budget allocation for marketing in 2019. And you know, pretty much the majority of the article is talking about the fact that they're going to be using that money to amplify their talent and to amplify their TV shows and movies, but not actually to amplify that of Netflix. You know, um, and you know the reason I think that we can make you know from an assumptive perspective is that 
people connect with people. You know, people don't connect with you know brands. You know, so like you, you, you could use a similar argument to go back in time and look at a lot of hugely successful businesses and be like, you know, were people you know thirty years ago really attached to Apple? Or were they really attached to the Steve Jobs story? You know, uh, and there's there's lots of examples about this that go back in history. Um, you know, to talk to it. Uh, you know, why do Nike or Adidas you know use athletes to promote their products? Right, because it sends the message that they want to send. You know, um, so I think. Look, I think whilst you know whilst you can succeed obviously without that, I think for us, you know, in our space, we really want to have that one to one personal connection with people, and so it helps having people like Kayla to you know to allow us to spearhead that. Mm, absolutely, and do you see that? changing over time do you see the brand of sweat uh becoming a more predominant brand as opposed to you know kayla's personal brand yeah we kind of have a conversation internally um you know quite uh, quite frequently about um you know what we kind of deem as brand salience um you know so effectively like you know how recognizable is our brand and you know how much does our brand come up in kind of general day-to-day conversation um so you know maybe i'll, I'll refer back to netflix again here to defer the answer but you know i guess you know no one ever anymore says, oh, I'm going to go to the movies or I'm going to like sit home and watch a movie this weekend, right? They're obviously going to Netflix and chill, right? That, you know, that became the thing. Although we, you know, really focused on the individuals at this point in time and that will probably remain a very valid strategy for the, the short, medium and long-term future, um, you know, I think that, that there's definitely value in having the brand name and that. But for us, I mean, the, the brand that we're trying to build isn't necessarily about like, oh, we've just got the best workouts or we, we have a personal trainer. It's more about like, well, if you have any need for anything health and fitness related, you know, and you're a woman anywhere in the world speaking any language with any degree of fitness experience or not, any general health and fitness problem to do with exercise or nutrition, you know, like that we will be the place where the conversation starts. Mm. You've referenced Netflix a couple of times in this conversation and I've read you reference Netflix uh, in some other interviews that you've done. How important is looking at models like the Netflix to you helping drive your strategy? Oh, I think think pivotal. Um, You know, I think... uh, I very often reflect on this when talking to other people. I do a little bit of mentoring myself, um, you know, and I talk with a lot of other entrepreneurs and business people you know, in, in general, day-to-day you know, life for me, traveling and such. And, um, you know, I think, like, I think if, you, if, you, you, if you don't create a reference point, like, it makes it very hard to strategize. Yeah, and so the reason I make that remark is you know, like, a lot of people would look at Netflix and be like, oh, like, they're, they're an entertainment business. Um, but from my perspective, I would say, well, like, I, I don't think that you could be further from the truth. You know, they're a media production company, the best, if, if not the best, one of the best in the world. Um, they're a technology company, you know, in the media space, you know, um, and they're a subscription business, right? You know, so effectively, like, for them, like, they've got three things that they need to absolutely win at at all moments in time. They really need to understand subscription economics, right, and how that works and how we engage users and so on and so forth really need to understand technology and software and product development and really need to understand how to create high-quality, engaging content at low cost, right? Like, you know, so they're not just an entertainment company, no different to us. Like, we're not a health and fitness company, you know, in its purest sense. Like, we produce content, a huge amount of it at high quality, at a high velocity, you know, we do a lot of work in the software space with, like, technology and product development, you know, and and then we we have our subject matter, right? So very, very similar models. I imagine there's a lot of people listening to this who have used the Sweat app, in fact. Hope so, yeah. My daughter said, oh, yeah, I use that. Who knew? I didn't. Well, Uh, thank you for your support. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and would think, you know, it can't be that hard. Mm -hmm. It's 
produce some content, stick it on a yep. stick it on an app, get some coders to put it together, yep. job done. Mm-hmm. I can imagine the truth yeah. is a long way mm-hmm. from that statement. Well, I'll uh, I think I'll, maybe I'll, I'll digress. I'll digress temporarily, but um, so specifically on the software piece, right? So I, I don't come from a software background at all. Um, I have a relatively okay grasp on it nowadays. Um, yeah, but that wasn't necessarily always the case. And so I think back in uh, back in 2015, we, we sort of started, you know, developing our first real piece of software. When I say that, I wouldn't necessarily say like a, a website in its simplest form isn't, you know, it's not like building a mobile app. It's a lot simpler. Yeah. Um, you know, so... In, yeah, we, we start, you know, kind of, we embark on this journey, you know, and we, we do a lot of research, you know, um, R&D, you know, forecasting, budgeting, and we, we get all this stuff in place. And we're like, oh, it's roughly going to cost us, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars to, to get to market with the first version of this. And so um, with this, so this was post the release of the post e-book. the ebook, yeah. Oh, so the ebook, so, e-book went gangbusters. E- ebook did great. Um, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll digress again. A second, so after the ebook, basically we got to a point where, um, from a strategic standpoint, it was kind of like raising the sights. And I was like, we've done a really good job, and we've achieved this much to date. Hundreds of thousands of consumers around the world. You know, cool. How do I get a hundred million? people did you actually have that thought at that time yeah yeah yeah. literally you know so it was you know it was like okay cool how do i get 100 million people right yeah and how do we learn more about what they actually want you know and then how do we how do we introduce this to how do we introduce this to consumers with a business model that is you know like broadly accepted because like a single purchase business model in our industry actually isn't broadly accepted so if you look back through history, you know, whether it be food or gyms or personal training, they're almost all subscription services in their own right, just a little bit more um, archaic perhaps in the way they operate. Like, you know, there's, there's no engagement automation strategy, you know, for a gym, right? But the, there's still ways that they engage you to try to, try to keep you there. But so anyway, we, we really strategically made that pivot from a, you know, um, a PDF, you know, ebook, you know, through to a mobile platform. Uh, from a single purchase service through to a subscription service, um, you know, from a business that had no real data about what their users were doing with their product to a business that has every single possible piece of data that you could ever want, um, you know, from from the consumer um, in relation to you know what what we're providing, um, and so that, that that was really quite deliberate and strategic, but. Back to the, the product development stuff, though. Um, so yeah, the first time around, we did all this research and you were kind of like, oh, this will cost us a few hundred thousand dollars. It'll take this many months and, yeah, cool, we'll be there. And so, so how did you fund that? Is that just out of your pocket? Well, yeah, so <clears throat> initially, um, yeah, we, we were very well, – we, we were profitable from day one. So even when we launched e-books, like I took money out of my savings to, to launch a company. Um, we've, we've not raised any VC or, or private equity or any equity like capital to date. Um, we're all cash flow funded, so most people would be very envious of in your space. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. We, um, oh, I mean, look, not not that this stat is anything to compare to today, but you know, for our first eighteen to twenty four months of business, we were growing, you know, like well and truly double digit figures on top line per month, whilst maintaining a roughly seventy to seventy five percent profit margin. Yeah, so like traditional e-commerce, you know, using basic user acquisition methodology a few years ago was was it was like that. It was that was the way that you could operate. It's no different to when you know PPC ads came out on Google back in you know the early two thousands. Like it was people were cleaning up then doing a really good job, but then they changed and it's a lot harder now. But um, but anyways, we forecast that it would cost us you know a couple of hundred thousand bucks to get the launch, and ended up costing us nearly three times what we forecast, and that was purely just you know we realised that the closer we got to um, you know like finishing the initial bit, we realised that it wasn't good enough for what we wanted. So it was cool, but then we're like, oh, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And then we also started to realise that. 
there wasn't really any kind of off-the-shelf software that would help us to achieve a lot of what we wanted to achieve. So, okay, then we had to start building all of the software to allow us to do all the stuff that we wanted to do in order to actually have the product. You know, so fully custom CRM, fully custom, sorry, sorry fully custom client resource management platform, um, fully custom content management platform, fully custom marketing platform. You're like, a lot of this stuff just didn't exist. So why didn't you launch with the minimal viable product, which a lot of software development of houses course. will say that's yep. what you should do to yeah. get out into the marketplace? 100%. And like, I'm, I'm truly supportive of the MVP model. Um, but I think, yeah, for us, like we were at this point in time, like generating well over $20 million a year. You know, and like selling to hundreds of thousands of people. So if we had all of a sudden gone from a product that was perfectly stable, already had all this stuff into it, we couldn't just release the same thing but in an app. You know, we had to release something that was at least 100 levels up. Yeah. You know, like Apple doesn't come out with the same iPhone every single year with the same stuff. Every single year is drastically improved. There's new software, there's new hardware, there's new functions, and then every 12 to 18 months there's a new product altogether, whether it be Apple TV or the Apple Watch or whatever, right? They're making significant strides forward. And so for us, like, although, you know, a lot of what we do now is, is quite literally based on the MVP model, we'll, we'll release the MVP model of a new function and an A-B test to a really small cohort of our audience, um, typically a highly engaged one. Um, yeah, we'll test with them, get user feedback, iterate it and whatever. But, yeah, for the initial launch, like, you can't really do that. You know, I think at this point we had, a, we had an audience of maybe maybe nearly 10 million people, I think, across all of our platforms. And, like, you don't release an MVP to 10 million people, not like that. You know, you might release an MVP to 10,000 people, but not 10 million. Um, so we did that anyway. And although we thought that we were not doing an MVP, it turned out we probably did worse. Um, you know, so we, uh, we pushed the product live. Um, it, was, uh, it was like an, an emotional dichotomy at an absolute finest. So on one hand, it was... Emotional dichotomy for you. Yeah. Well, and probably for a lot of the team, to be honest, as well. Because I think, you know, on one hand, we've been working on this product for the better part of a year. And we all think it's tremendous. And it works beautifully. And so we deploy it and we're all so excited. And then in immediate return to that, we get 25,000 complaints via email in the first day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm sure you can imagine, um, you know, just keeping in mind that that's only, only the emails, right? So that's not including social media. social media where you've got, like I said, 10 million people. Not including app store reviews, like there's, you know, the forums, discussion boards, like, you know, so there's probably more like 50 to 100,000 pieces of feedback, which are not the most tremendous pieces of feedback. Um, but, you know, but look, I think like huge lesson. So what happened at that point? What was going through your minds? What was going through yeah. the team's mind? Did you, yeah. was there any sense, you know, or pre-sense that, mm. you know, hey, it might not be perfect, but it's pretty darn good? Um, or was this just out of the blue, smack in the back of the head? Well, look, I think, you know, to be honest, it was a little bit out of the blue, you know, because, you know, when you, I guess when you, you, know, you, you write an ebook, you know, you publish the ebook, you sell it, when everyone buys it, they get it every single time. You know, the only possible variables are oh, maybe the ebook didn't deliver. So you just send them the ebook, right? It's pretty straightforward. But, you know, when you've got an app with like 10,000 different screens, you know, with like, thousands of events, thousands of pieces of information, you know, whatever. Um, plenty of room for error, you know. And so, um, but it turned out, you know, so we, 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 you know, we battened down the hatches, we received all the feedback, we catalogued the things that we deemed as being the most, you know, um, you know, ones which we received the most, you know, so what feedback did we get the most? Um, the, the feedback which we could kind of, you know, it was implied that, you know, for example, a higher percentage of users that would try to perform that action would hit that, Thing. So, for example, if you've got a bug that only one in every 10,000 people get, doesn't really make much of a difference. But if you've got a bug that every single time the user opens an app and goes start on a workout that doesn't work, 
probably a problem, right? So we kind of, you know, we catalogued it, created a list, you know, wrote all the lists down. And then over the next two weeks, we just, every 24 hours, did daily builds, you know, so we'd fix the bugs, deploy a new version, fix the bugs, deploy a new version, fix the bugs, deploy a new version. And every single time I went out, you'd be less and less and less and less progressively complaints. And so, you know, uh, you know, two weeks later, you know, we're number one on all of the charts globally. We've got the most users. People are finally buying and starting to use the product and whatever and off we go. Yeah. At the beginning, before you started cataloging the issues and working mm-hmm. through a plan, mm. was there anything that went through your head that said, what the hell are we doing? Oh. We've made a mistake. Yeah, pl- plenty of those things. Probably not quite as polite, um, but <laughs> if I'm truly honest. Um, Did you ever think about just blowing our money? Let's, let's go and do something else. Yeah, look, to be honest, I think from a product perspective, like never once in my mind did I kind of consider that people would dislike this because the product improvement was light years ahead of, you know, here's a a document with some images, right? You know, it's got video, it's got tutorials, it's got all the content in one place. You don't have to flick through pages. It'll deliver to, you know, there was all these different stuff, right? So I guess I never, you know, I never really considered that. Um, Or a lot of my considerations are more around like, you know, like financial forecasting, like um, unit economic modeling, you know, like that sort of stuff. Like is is this actually going to perform and stack up like one-to-one against a traditional e-commerce model or not? Um, You know, it turns out... um, yeah, it turns out that at that point in time, I truly underestimated the complexity of subscription economics, which is fine, but now I get it a bit better. But, um, you know, at that point in time, like my concerns are more about, you know, we're already making 20 million bucks a year. If we, we're basically by selling this product, we're detracting from the ebook audience, hopefully to try and hit a bigger audience. But we've still got to make that actually stack up financially because otherwise then we go backwards financially, which we did. Yeah, so we, we, went, we went from generating, you know, over 2 million bucks a month you know, to $900,000 a month, literally in 30 days. Did you forecast that? Did you see that yep. as being, yep. Yep, yeah, of course, you know, because, you know, you go from selling a $120 product to selling a $20 product paid monthly. Um, you know, you've got, um, you know, you've got lifetime value and engagement metrics. You've got churn. So, you know, not every user is going to spend $120. You ideally get more users and you know, less barriers to entry. Like you've got trial modeling. There's all these different, you know, levers, like unit economic levers you can kind of play with. But, you know, we... Um, yeah, yeah, we, we figured that out. Um, yeah, we had a we had a thirty five percent growth year you know, that year. Um, yeah, we had eighty six percent growth year the year after. You know, like so, it, it's it's stacked up. Like it worked really well. And it was, but it's a classic innovator's dilemma, isn't it? Oh, I've very created much so. this great product which mm-hmm. is super successful. Mm-hmm. When do I burn that to the yeah. ground? Yeah, to create something new, mm-hmm. and how do I do that? Yeah, and every organisation that's had a great success yep. somewhere in some product has to go through that yeah, journey, very and much so. not only has to have the mm. the foresight to be able to do that, which most don't. Yeah, and but sometimes you but go backwards, and mm. sometimes you've got to go backwards, right? Like, um, and, and yeah, like it, even it's not even necessarily about doing things worse. Like you might need to make changes for the purpose of doing things better in the future, but a lot of the time the customer doesn't and will not understand that. You know, so you've got to find ways to combat that. You know, in the short term, like we had a lot of customers who literally said. Yeah, cool. So um, I'm going to go back to the ebook now because the app is crap. You know, and I was like, <laughs> I'd already paid for the ebook. <laughs> yeah, literally, right. And you know, yeah, so we, we, we had a lot of that. You know, but um, you know, I think like, I'm of the opinion that if you wait for the right moment to innovate, you know, quote unquote, you know, um, uh, I think you've you've probably already made a mistake. Like, you know, as soon as you've got that idea and you can validate it, it's like it's you know, a hundred percent of your time and energy should go into that because every moment that you don't, there's a chance that somebody else will do that. Exactly. And every, every moment that you don't, like, you know, uh, presumably the innovation is, you know, typically about providing the user a better service. Every moment that you're not providing them a better service, like you're doing them a disservice, you know, so you've got to move. I love it. Yeah. So 
25,000 email complaints, mm-hmm. bunch on more on social media. Yep. You run really hard over the next, would you say, two, two weeks, weeks yeah. to get the new version out was every day. Was it literally, literally, pretty much every, every 24 hours doing a build, so daily mm. builds. Um, and then even a few weeks after that, we're doing a release, you know, probably once a week or whatever for the next probably almost two months. Um, so there's a lot of like, a lot of debugging, you know, basically like um, because... I mean, yeah, it's a really funny thing that you can test something as much as you like, but very often there's still going to be edge cases that you miss. Um, you, we, we develop systems for that you know, now, obviously, to cater for it because we're delivering to a bigger audience. But, um, but yeah, early on, you know, whether it's an MVP or you know, level up from the MVP, like you just at that point, your systems are not typically good enough, you know, to actually like withstand that much traffic. Like, you know, it's any company that's ever gone through like a critical mass of you know website traffic for the first time like they'll probably have a website crash or two and then after you've had them big enough and you realize it's cost you enough money and you've got all the email complaints and whatever like you know then and only then has that priority become big enough for you to actually tackle so spend time doing it at the enterprise grade level yeah yeah yeah, correct yeah which is look and, and typically is a lot slower you know, you've got to go slower to do things, you know, more detailed, but at the same time you need to move fast enough that you don't get overtaken by other people, right? It's, so. it's a classic, you know, I'll innovate fast and quick, yep. but I've got to build robust and reliable. Yeah. And how do I balance those two yep. things together? Correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. So two weeks later, you're at the top of yeah, Apple health charts. and fitness category, yep. Um, did you celebrate then? Because I imagine you didn't celebrate on day one when you got 25,000 Well, I mean, we, we did have a bit of a celebration before the complaints started coming through. Um, it wasn't <laughs> until they started coming through that the celebration stopped. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, we definitely had a bit of celebrations then. It was, um, yeah, the, the first time we released the product was on the 21st of November in 2015. So we, um, we, we, you know, very shortly after that, like, had a Christmas party and, you know, a bit of a, bit of a, bit of a relaxing time then. And then obviously we had the break over Christmas and it was, it was good and whatever. But so, yeah, was, we did celebrate. It was just unfortunately not quite as um, singular and, uh, you know, perhaps as amplified as what we hoped that would be. But So looking um, back on that period of time... Yep. Is there anything you would have done differently had you known the feedback? Like, oh, look, I mean, there's always things you do differently, but I think that you know the way that we did things at that point in time was the best way that we could have done it with that amount of knowledge and learnings and resources and capacity. You know, um, you can only like, I believe that you know, provided that you've done. Um, you, you've worked as hard as you can and you've had all the learnings that you think that you should have and you've asked all the questions you should have, you know, why, 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 you know. You know, I think you, you, you've done enough you know, due diligence that you, you, you kind of you, you'll get a decent quality product regardless. Now, look, was it the best? No. Yeah, but is our current product the best that it will ever be? No, because it's continually iterating, right? We're continually improving it. So I think, um, you know, I think a lot of people who work in the software space, you know, would really agree with the fact that, like, you know, if you're chasing perfection, like you're aiming for the wrong target. You know, like software just doesn't work that way. So where, uh, where where are you today in terms of subscribers and subscription base today? Um, Can so, you talk to that? So no, we, do, we don't talk about it publicly from yep. a paying perspective, um, but, um, yeah, we, we, we've had tens of millions of users have come in. Um, we're making some very exciting pivots, uh, you know, over the next probably six to 12 months. Um, and I guess, you know, probably to add some flavour to that, like what, what I really mean is that currently you know to, to to be a member of our you know to be a member of our product and our brand and our company basically most of the services you have to pay for um which is pretty typical with the content subscription business but i think um you know something that we've realized a lot over the last you know 12 to 24 months is that there's uh, there's a lot of passive type fitness users and there's also a lot of type of there's a lot, there's a lot of women who basically it takes them a while to build the confidence to actually work out and currently, you know, if I, you know, to mention what I said before, if we really want to serve our customers best, 
then we have to have an experience which actually helps to facilitate that learning curve. You know, not all people can wake up in the morning and be like, cool, today I'm going to start my workout program and I'm going to train five days, five days a week or three days a week or seven days a week. Like, lots of people can't actually get up and do that. You know, they've got to get up and try to do their one workout this week. And then next week they'll try and do one again. And then in a couple of weeks' time they'll be doing two a week. And so there's that uplift, right? But for them, like early on in that period of like, I guess, you know, insecurity or lack of assurance, you know, they don't really want to invest the money. But if our platform doesn't support that, then obviously we're not providing the best service to them. So we're going through the process at the moment of basically you know, opening up bits and pieces of the platform to allow them to be used either for free or you know, more limited access for a free period of time because um, we believe effectively you know, as a company, like our mission statement is to positively impact the lives of as many women as possible you know, is a portion of our mission statement. If we're not making our service available to as many women as possible, then we're not really being authentic to that. So we're we're trying to take some leaps and bounds in that direction to, you know, how do we hit the hundred million how do we get a hundred million women, you know, all working out like in a thirty day period? Like, you know, um, some of those women are gonna have different desires to pay, you know, so we've got to figure out ways to make that work for them, not just for the business. So pretty phenomenal growth over the last three or four years. Have you managed that growth along the way? Because a lot of companies either don't manage it well and yep. go out of business, mm-hmm. or they manage it with a whole roller coaster of you know, train wrecks along the way. Yeah. What yeah. have you done along the way that you think has helped you manage that growth? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think uh, you know, from a visual perspective, you can imagine you know, me and a lot of our staff sort of standing around with fire hydrants, trying to figure out which fire is burning, <laughs> you know, more aggressively at any given point in time, and spraying that one for a little bit. Um, no, but uh, you know, or there's, we were talking you know, earlier about um, Reid Hoffman's podcast, Masters of Scale. Um, you know, I think um, you know, he kind of refers to it as you know, jumping off a cliff and building a plane on the way down and hopefully, hopefully finishing it before you hit the ground. Um, but um, look, I think, I think managing like, rapid growth organisations could, could not be more challenging um but i think also for you know for myself i think it couldn't be more stimulating um you know so although it's you know there's times when you're tired and times when you're frustrated and things won't work or won't go fast enough and how do you find the people and this and the other like i mean i I genuinely really enjoy that you know i I love i love this business you know i love the work that we're doing um and i think it provides good a good amount of authentic meaning and value to people um so yeah I, i think i think we're on a good journey so as a you know founder of a an amazing company what sacrifices have you had to make along the way that have helped contribute to your success? Um, so it's a good question, and I think maybe my perspective is probably a little different um, to what a lot of other people would say. Um, I think, you know, if I went for that, the, the typical response, you'd probably be like, oh, I've, you know, I've sacrificed hours of sleep and, <laughs> you know, I've, 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 you know, I had to save my money and, you know, whatever, right, like whatever it is. And look, and like, I think that, you know, from a, a functional perspective, all of those things are true. You do do that. You, you do probably sleep less, you know, you socialise less and whatever. But um, whether or not I would, you know, classify those things as sacrifices, sacrifices yeah. yeah, I think... Um, you know, you know, is is it a sacrifice to me working an extra hour to a day instead of sitting at home watching TV? Hell no. You know, like I enjoy that. You know, um, is it a sacrifice? You know, having to take my time out on the weekend to to read fifty to one hundred books a year and listen to five hundred podcasts a year and you know read newsletters and like no, like you know, I love that. And you know, for me, that genuinely makes me happy. You know, so I think provided that that's not happening at the cost of other things in my life and at the cost of balance. I wouldn't really see them as sacrifices. So I think, 
that's probably maybe not necessarily an answer to the question, but I, I don't no, know. No, I think it is. I think it's absolutely yeah. an answer to the question. And yeah. we often hear that statement that yeah. leaders are readers. Yeah, And right. really it's not about the reading, it's about the gaining mm. knowledge and yeah. insight and other things along the way as yeah. opposed to sitting down and watching, you know, the latest yeah. TV show. And I think, yeah, I think, yeah, you could probably almost almost replace the word sacrifice to a degree with reprioritise. So, you know, so I've chosen to prioritise my desire to learn and you know, probably spend time with the really important people in my life than to watch normal you know, maybe television shows or, or waste my time you know, hanging out with an abundance of people that you know, maybe aren't going to be the best support to me and I'm not the best support to them and you know, maybe there's better use of both of our times. You know, there's, so. there's probably a better word for it. It's probably mm. investment. Yeah. Because really, ultimately, the time mm. that you have is the only thing, yeah. really, that you've yeah. got ultimate control and ownership mm. over. Yeah. And so are you going to invest it into yeah. you know, the latest uh, TV show well, or are you going to invest it into few, your business? Yeah, it's one of the very few limited currencies, right? Like, you know, if you spend some money and you, you invest money, you know, right, and you lose it, like, that sucks. So, but you can do lots of things to make more money, hopefully, to reinvest that and, you know, have your next win or your next success, right? But, um, but you can't reinvest time. It's impossible. It's gone. Yeah. So, and you know, I, I probably take this to the extreme a little bit. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, you know, full on in some ways with it. But, um, yeah. What, what do you mean by full on with it? Oh, like, you know, like, you know, going to bed at a certain time, waking up at a certain time, training a certain amount of time, eating a certain amount of food, drinking a certain amount of water. Like, everything in my life is measurable. Like, I'm really extreme with it. it. Just sounds like you're disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. Well, disciplined is probably another way of saying it. But, um, yeah. So I think, you know, for me, like, I, I take the, you know, the time and opportunities thing, like, really, really seriously. You know, like, each of us are only here. Year, you know, on a planet for a certain amount of time and you know, I think that you know, it's our obligation to yeah sure we need to enjoy it but how do we add as much value back to the world as possible and like part of that's not necessarily just through business or whatever it's just through it's, it's through relationships it's through passing on learnings you know supporting one another like there's lots of different values and so I'd rather be using my time to do that than a lot of other stuff so to so talk about money and you raised that before when you read things like the AFR's you know, mm-hmm. Young Rich List and, mm-hmm. and you see a number of, I think it was $486 million the net worth between you and Kayla. Yeah, I don't, maybe I haven't actually read it to be honest. When, but. <laughs> when you see that, what do you, yeah. what do you think? Oh, look, I mean... I think from an outside perspective, like I think, you know, maybe that's a, that's a positive and obviously it's nice to be seen in a successful light, that's for sure. Does that validate success at all? No, not really. No. Um, that was what I was going to go on to say. I'm like, for me, like, you know, if that said, you know, $10, $100 or a trillion dollars, like it doesn't, that's not actually going to change my day tomorrow or today. You know, um, you know, but if we were to... So what know, do you mean by that? Because a lot of people would listen to that and go, hell, I'd have changed my life if I had you oh, know, that. Oh, of course. Yeah, lots of people typically would. But I think, um, yeah, but I think like my, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more driven by, you know, like the impact that we can actually provide to people, you know. Yeah. So like I get that, you know, money is a, is a currency and it is a requirement for a business to grow and to succeed and so on and so forth. And obviously, yes, it is the, you know, I guess the, the, the colloquial or quintessential measuring stick, you know, for that of an, a budding entrepreneur, of course, you know, and from a personal perspective, you know, I'm sure lots of people obviously would aspire to have however much money they have now, they want more, right? But on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's like, like regardless of what the media says or doesn't say about it and regardless of whatever the bank balance does or doesn't say, like that, that's not actually what's going to make you happy or make you feel fulfilled or achieved or, you know, successful. You know, for me... You know, we, we run event tours all over the world. You know, we, we've trained probably more than 100,000 women in, in multiple different countries. And we run every single one of those events for free. You know, and we, we, you know, I show up on one a couple of years back in New York and there's the better part of 5,000 women there. 
you know, and I can guarantee you that talking to some of those girls about the experience and stories that they've had in their life and how our product has helped them overcome some of the most insane, you know, tragedies that you've ever heard in your life, like, that's a lot more exciting and fulfilling and motivating than whatever the AFR, you know, number has to say, like, appreciative of the media and you know i think that that's a great output and a great article and hopefully as well that motivates other entrepreneurs but for me personally like you know it's not i wouldn't necessarily say that's the kpi yeah well the interesting thing is you didn't start this journey to get on the afr rich list no it's never even a consideration and so most entrepreneurs will tell you and certainly many that i've spoken Mm. to and met over the years will tell you that they never started out to make squillion dollars problem they started solution, out right? problem solution they started yeah. out with making a contribution to society they started yeah. out with solving a you know a dilemma that they'd faced mm. in their own life yep and very that's much. and that's where the the drive comes from yeah very very much so like uh yeah no one no one ever innovated for the sake of innovating right <laughs> like you innovate because there's a problem that needs to be mm. solved and the solution is the innovation right yeah and uh, obviously a lot of great businesses are born out of that but i don't think you know don't think um yeah, 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 Einstein didn't solve the theory of relativity for the sake of becoming famous or making money or doing any of those things, right? He was just interested in it. Yeah, and it was a problem he wanted to solve. Um, yeah, I obviously can't say I ever knew Steve Jobs personally, but I can imagine for him, like, he was really, truly obsessed with providing the best customer experience possible and had a vision for what, you know, hardware and computers would be in people's lives. It wasn't so much about, like, he probably didn't even know what the commercial reality or opportunity of that was. You know, how do you possibly become a visionary at that level about Apple becoming a company like that that far in advance. It was really, it all started with computers as this cool new thing. Imagine what they could do. Imagine the problems that they could solve and imagine the experiences they could provide. That's where it usually starts. So where does the personal drive come from for you? Because you're incredibly, clearly an incredibly disciplined person mm. with a ton of drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what fuels that outside of, you know, achieving a great outcome for to your customers? I ask myself that question a lot, Do you? If, I'm, yeah. if I'm really honest. Um, yeah, and I think, um, like, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, on one hand, like, I have always just been, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 26 now, but I've, I've always just been that kid that just wants to do stuff, right? And so it doesn't matter whatever it is, like, you know, whether it's, you know, like I played music a lot growing up. Like I studied classical piano really seriously for you know more than fifteen years, and like you know, and like when I was doing that, it was like you know, multiple hours a day of practice. I just wanted to win. I wanted to do well. I wanted to be one of the best. And you know that that theme kind of you know played into many areas of my life. You know, sport, music, not so much school, but you know when I ran my own business, you know, like running my own business as a PT, boot camps. You know, now this company, like I want it to just be the best. And you know, obviously, the, the, the definition and measure of best and success, obviously, is always open to interpretation. But I think the way that that relays back to you know work ethic and discipline is that that that's my driver. I just want to do good stuff. You know, um, I think a lot of you know, like, you know everyone has their their childhood and their life, and we all have good and bad stuff. You know, I, I had my difficult times. Everyone has theirs. Um, yeah, but I don't. I don't, wouldn't necessarily really say that there's like one thing or, or some sort of sob story that's like, oh, that is what motivates me to do good because it's not necessarily true. Those things will motivate you for a little while. Money will motivate you for a little while, but ultimately, it's diminishing returns. Yeah, if you're not intrinsically driven to do good stuff and do good stuff by other people, you know you'll probably run out of motivation pretty quick. Mm. So when you're building your company, and obviously you've got a number of staff that work for you now, how Mm -hmm. important is them buying into what it is that you're doing 
Yeah, yeah look, I think it's tremendously important. Um, um, there's a, you know, from, from, a, from a leadership perspective, like, you know, 70% of, um, you know, the, the behavior of a team and the emotional mindset of a team is literally dictated by the leader. You know, so if I can't get them on board with what I'm doing, and we're probably not really going to, you know, get that far. Um, I think, uh, you know, from a, like, again, from a leadership and cultural perspective, like, it's, you know, the more that employees get engaged, yeah, and the more the employees want to be here and understand why we're doing things, obviously, you know, the, the, the more time, energy and output, you know, we, we'll receive from them. So I think, you know, we give back to them and they give back to us. So it's the same thing. Mm. Pretty exciting journey along the way, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. So yeah. how many staff do you have now? Um, so we're, we're pushing about 70 here at the moment. Um, we're kind of in the middle of a really aggressive recruitment phase right now. Um, so we've got a lot of roles coming in. You know, we literally have a few people starting almost every week or every second week at this rate. Um, we've just you know, re- recently been you know, doing some you know, senior leadership hires, which has been really exciting for the business. Um, and I think like for us, yeah, we, we've got so many new roles coming into the organisation now, you know, like spread across like user experience research and, you know, data science and like, these are really new roles for us as a company um, and so it's, it's a super exciting time to, to be around. So what's the challenge around maintaining culture when you're bringing so many new people yep. into the business? Because one of the risks is the dilution mm. of the core culture that made yeah. the, the organisation a success. Yep, very much so. What are your thoughts around that? Uh, single biggest problem is communication. But I think, and I think, literally every person I've ever spoken to, yeah, you know, in a senior leadership position, will pretty much say the same thing. Um, yeah, look, you know, do, do we have that mastered? Absolutely no. Um, but will we continue to iterate it to the point where we get it to be very, very good? Yeah, you know, absolutely yes. Um, you know, I think uh, you know, any any form of communication breakdown you know, in the senior level of an organisation is only going to compound every layer that it moves down or, or across through the organisation. So, yeah, um, yeah, something that we've we've invested really heavily into um, you know, over the last couple of months has been leadership training, um, which I participate in as well because I want to learn. But you know, about um, you know, how, how do we communicate better? How do we communicate the same? So as leaders, how do we all communicate the same? You know, so we we've, we spend a lot of time, money, and, and, and energy into you know pushing out um, strengths-based positive psychology approach throughout the organisation. And I think the you know the, the effects are quite profound. Like if I'm really honest, and it's been a really great learning. So, for so me. what sort of effects? What have you what have you seen in terms of you know, change? Well, I think you know, like, you know, for example, like a really basic one is like a lot of people, most people don't like receiving feedback. It, it, it's a pretty pretty basic thing to understand like if you work really hard on something and someone says like oh, hey that, that that's pretty crap like it's going to upset you right but you know we, we we have a consistent and conventional model that we use to provide feedback to people at any layer of the organization and so you know part of part of us utilizing that and we've only really just begun introducing that it really means that we then create a culture where feedback is actually common you know so you don't work for six months and you're under the illusion that you're doing a really great job and then REM reviews come around and you don't get a pay rise and you're like, well, what the hell is going on here? And then they've got this long list of 30 or 40 things that you've been an absolute failure at, not from being bad at them, just from thinking that you were doing them the right, the right way when you weren't, right? You know, so for us, like something as simple as creating a culture of feedback allows us to iterate. It's literally, it's no different to user feedback for a product. And you get that instantaneously, right? Correct. So as, you know, when you release a new version, yep. you get it instantaneously. Literally, metrics either go this way or that way, and then social media either goes, you know, good or bad. Yeah. <laughs> waiting, waiting for your annual review to find out that you haven't yeah. been doing a great job is not yeah. going to help no, anything. It's, it's like investing anyway. 10 million bucks into advertising and then checking back a year later. Yeah, like that's not going to happen. <laughs> you check back 
two seconds later and then two hours and then 10 hours and, you know, there's, there's obviously different frequencies, right? So I think for us, like, yeah, we've taken an approach to really, you know, I guess, you know, create convention for the way that we do some of those things and handle those conversations and, you know, process and system and such. But The thing that I really like about that, that model is that you're actually aligning your people and process to your customer, yeah, correct. Right, because your customer and your product is all around instantaneous yep. feedback and, and if your mm-hmm. organisation isn't aligned the same way, yeah. then you're always going to be at uh, opposite ends of the spectrum oh, of in course. terms of your development of both your internal yeah. people as well as your product. Yeah, if you had a customer like giving you really, really, really poor feedback, like, you know, for lack of a better language, we're saying like, you know, your product's like, it's, it's pretty shit. That new feature they release is pretty shit. You know, like you, if you take that to heart, like that's going to be a really draining day at work for you and every other day when you have those conversations with a lot of customers who care less about your product than you do, right? Yeah, but if you can, you know, if you can, you know, kind of, you know, take the emotion out of that and be like, well, what are they really saying to me? And, you know, whatever, it, it, you're going to get a lot more value out of it. And that's effectively what these type of frameworks do. It's, you know, how do you, con- how do you communicate this in the most, you know, logical way possible, you know, so that, you know, you can use, well, prefrontal cortex effectively you have the brain to you know to process that information rather than using the emotional center of your brain and getting distracted so and the thing that we you know particularly when we're working with staff is that we actually want them to be the best they can be yeah exactly that's that's all it is if they can be better than me at my job great yeah like i say this all the time like you know a lot of people you know use the saying like if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room right yeah but again like you know one of the steve jobs quotes was basically that you know you know i don't hire smart people so I can tell them what to do. Yeah, I hire smart people so they can tell me what to do. You know, so you're using the example of data science, for example, my, I can think as much as I want about the data and I can believe as much as I want to believe. I can only see what I can see surface level, right? But they're going to come in and turn around to me and a whole bunch of other teams about, hi, here's a whole bunch of information and resources that are really interesting that you should use to make better decisions about what you're doing. Yeah, and like if I get upset about that or other people get upset about that, we're not going to really do that, not, not really going to do that well. Yeah, so I think taking that information and receiving the feedback objectively, you know, as much as giving it objectively, they're both skills, yeah. So how do you drive innovation inside your organisation, given that really that's fundamentally yeah. what you're all yeah. about? Yeah. What are the types of things that you do to breed that, to cultivate that, yeah. to help drive that? Well, look, I mean, it's, that's a really, 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 really cool topic to have a conversation about. Like, I think, um, you know, initially, like, I didn't really understand, like, so to, to be clear, um, you know, I didn't really understand that what we were doing was innovation. And I would have never, ever classed that as that. I literally looked at, the, uh, at everything, you know, as, as a situation and would individualize them and basically be like, well, we're trying to achieve this particular thing and there's a whole bunch of roadblocks here. Like, how can we fix them? Uh, well, you know, we could just build this really easy system to fix them. Okay, cool. Now the system's built and it fixed it. So this know? is in terms of the, your business process, or is this in terms yeah, of product or the literally. Whole? So product, business process, anything. You know, so we, yeah, imagine imagine a state where you've got six hundred different exercises, all with individual videos for a mobile platform, a watch platform, and a TV platform. So one thousand eight hundred you know, videos, and you've got to upload each of those individually, drag, drop, wait for it to download drag, drop, wait for it to download, drag, drop, save it, and then move on to the next exercise. You know, 1,800 of those to do, right? I'm bored already. Okay, all right. <laughs> now imagine that you write a script that goes for about four or five sentences long that reads the way the naming convention you use in the video files and can upload every single one of those in less than five minutes. You know, 
that's a form of innovation, right? Yeah, and so we, we've gone to the nth degree now with that, that. But that was one of the first things that we did with content management. So, you know, for us, I think, you know, how do we make innovation happen and make it available? You know, I think, honestly, like, you know, early on it was just we had problems and we solved them. And, you know, now, now looking at it from a more holistic standpoint, I think, you know, we make the resources available for the innovation to happen. You know, so like if you work in marketing or customer care or content or whatever, all of the systems pretty much that you use, we built from the ground up. You know, so if all of a sudden you have a problem and you want something to change, you literally just submit a work request. The work request will go through a grading and valuation matrix and regulation process. If it passes a test, we'll build the feature for you. If it doesn't, then we'll send it back and then you can change it. And if it ever gets accepted, then we'll build it. You know? so, what, so why did you build all that yourself? Was it there just nothing commercially available or did you um, just feel like you wanted to have you know, better control and innovation over, over the outcome? Yeah, look, I think nothing, nothing necessarily commercially available that would do all the things end-to-end, that's for sure. And, like, look, to be clear, we don't, we don't necessarily um, you know, build everything that we use. We do use off-the-shelf software and a lot of it, um, but just, we've also built a lot of software. Um, but I think, yeah, like at the time, like, yeah, certain certain stuff, we couldn't do what we wanted it to do. And then I think also as well, like, you know, there's, even if it did, it's like it's only going to last this long and then we need to build our own systems anyway, you know. Um, or there's the alternative, like, you know, we, we can do it better. Yeah, so we bought, we built a fully automated um, blog management system, which helps us to optimize the way that we do, you know, content and SEO. There's some other systems globally that would do it, but none that has the capacity that we have and can handle the things that we need to handle. So, we just build it and put it all in one place, yeah? So we've probably spent more time and more money building that software than we actually have a product, which is probably not necessarily the best way to go. But, um, yeah, but it's helped us get to where we are now. So mm, Brilliant. Well, it certainly is an exciting uh, journey that mm. you've been on. Uh, you can see the smile on your face. You must yeah. be pretty, pretty stoked about, uh, yeah. about what you've achieved so far, which is pretty phenomenal. And uh, I assume you're pretty excited about what uh, the future holds yeah. for you as well. Yeah, definitely am. And, uh, no, look, thank, thank you very much, obviously, for, for your time and um, yeah, I think uh, I couldn't be, I, mean, I typically use a lot, I couldn't be more excited about what's coming next but I've been the same degree of excitedness for the last five years straight pretty much so What a brilliant state to be in. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, look, it, I mean any business like any area of life has its ups and downs but I think you know, typically more often than not like I'm pretty excited about, about what's happening so mm, Congratulations, well done. Thank you very much Cheers I don't know about you folks, but I found Toby's story fascinating. I could have stayed talking to him the whole day. While it might be easy to look at Sweat and their success and think they're so big that their story doesn't relate to me, well, I think there's a number of great gems in there that relate to everyone who's running or starting a business, regardless of its size or market. The building blocks of a successful business are pretty universal. If you want to find out more about this episode, jump on our website, www.theselfmadetheory.com. And by the way, we've got a totally new website, so go and check it out. It has lots of goodness in there, all the podcast episodes plus our blog, along with a recommended book reading list for leaders. Hey, what did Harry Truman say? Not all readers are leaders, but all leaders are readers, plus info about my business coaching, mentoring, and advisory practice. If you want to find out more about this episode, jump on our website, www.theselfmadetheory.com, where you'll find all the ways you can contact them, plus my show notes and some great photos. Post audio for this episode was handled by Pod Productions. For inquiries, you can contact them on info at pod.productions. Until next time, keep innovating, overcoming and prospering. Mm-hmm.